Hmm. Because in the absence of creating what's next, your future is only but a repeat of the past. In other words, the past is only but a template for the future. So if you don't cause and create what's next, more or less what has happened before will return and repeat again. I used to chase the ROI all the time, return on investment. And over the course of time, that has evolved into what I call return on life. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Randy Dick here on the Return on Life podcast. It's not about the ROI. It's about the ROL, Return on Life. And I have a great guest, a guest that's got, um, well, so much to share. You're going to be really thrilled with what uh, we're going to be discussing today. And today I have Richard Dolan with me. Richard and I go back about 12, 13 years at this point connected through real estate, of course. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about real estate today, but Richard is a 30-year veteran experienced in investment banking and real estate, of course. Uh, he's the coach's coach in many ways, um, distinguished in so many ways, success with clients such as Oprah, Ellen, Dr. Phil, and so many others that I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit here too. So we have a great, great show lined up for you. Um, Richard himself is a financial leadership guy, he calls himself that. So, uh, and I've experienced that as well. So, lots of great stuff here to share with you today. Um, and also, uh, Richard, you might want to start with this a little bit. Uh, you're also part of this really cool wealth boutique firm called Legacy, too. So, Legacy and Return on Life, they all kind of fit together. So, welcome here, Richard. Randy, first of all, I just said this to you before we press record, and then anybody listening, all those following, your friends, your fans, your faithful, you got to know something. When you've got someone like you doing what you love doing and really showing up because you love it, man, that, that that's a game well won. Uh, how fitting it is that you talk about the return on life as the ultimate return on investment of our faith, our funds, and our energy. And it's just so delightful to see you now nearly two decades later. Uh, amazing how time flies when you know great people. And, and to see you just really, truly reignited and realigned with what it is that you just really have always been quite passionate about. So I just want to make sure you know that I'm just I'm watching you. I'm following you. I'm cheering you on. I'm celebrating your, your triumphs and your milestones. And I just want to say a uh, job well done, man. Mm, thank you so much. Well. It's uh, it's always great to hear kind words, and uh, kind words from you mean a lot to me. So thank you very much. Thank well, I mean, for everyone that's listening to the show, and I'm sure they all listen to other podcasts and follow other people, and some are entertainment purposes, and some of them are for educational purposes, and some of them are just to pass the time purposes. Um, the reality is that when you listen to someone who's really a living demonstration for the very thing that they're up to and they're doing, it's really easy to listen to it. It's it's easy to follow a, a comedian who really does internally laugh at their own jokes. It's it's easy to, you know, follow and listen to a musician that really clearly is passionate about the instrumentation that they weave. It's easy to follow, listen, revere, and celebrate, you know, filmmakers that really get lost in their craft. And so with you, it's the same sort of thing. It's it's being able to listen to someone that really is. This is not just a, a testament. This is not just an observation. I mean, this is my experience of you. So, um, I mean, I'm probably hammering the point pretty solidly. And I mean... I love making you squirm on your own show, but but the the, the truth is, is that I'm I'm, I'm a longtime fan, and I'm I'm really grateful to be able to call myself your friend. Mm, well, thank you, thank you, my friend Richard. Hey, when you hear return on life, what does that mean to you? 
And uh, how does that uh, convey to your coaching and and all the people that you touch on a on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis? Well, that's a great question. I mean, for me, I've been uh, an author for over two decades. I've been a visiting professor at uh, at a university. I've I've taught programs, written curricula, developed academia, and published works around the subject of money. And and as a student and a longtime uh, real uh, researcher within the realms of investor resilience and happiness economics and behavioral finance, I've been fascinated. I mean, completely fascinated with people's relationship. To money mm. and so return that term return uh is a very important one i mean most language that describes your experience of investing money or funds or your resources we all hope and pray for a return uh on it let alone the return of it and and, and both are very important so when I hear the term return on life, what I'm delighted to hear is that there's a performance that's expected of something. So a return on life could also imply three other things, the, the return to what's important, uh, the return on uh, onto the alignment to what matters most. And then, of course, the net result, that which wasn't there before is truly what you might call uh, the dessert, Right. Uh, the happy circumstance, the the wonderful ending, if it were, or as some creators of story and arcs call it the denouement, right? The happily ever after. And so I think that return on life is, is a real happy ending, if I may say, to a story well lived. So I think that's mm -hmm. that getting people present to the not expectation, but the requirement to see that there needs to be a positive net outcome that brings you a return on life. Uh, I think that's really cool. I think that's really wow. key. I think it's really, that's really current. I picked up on something there that I thought was really interesting because not a lot of people touch on this, the performance, the performance of return on life. You know, I think a lot of people, when they think of return on life, they think of all just the, uh, the, the accolades, the, you know, the, the sitting on the beach with a Mai Tai and, and sitting back and, and just resting. But return on life needs to have a performance metric to it as well. Just because it's not return on investment, which it is, but it's return on life. I think there's a there's a real strong component there that we need to think about. What's the performance? What's the net? And so thanks for touching on that. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that, but that was that was great. Well, well, I do now that you asked, and only because you've commented so eloquently and so accurately, and that is, I think we've romanticized return. I mean, there was an old day and age of where it was... Uh, uh, there's an old uh, campaign called Freedom 55, if you're north of the border. Uh, as a fellow Canadian, which we both are, uh, I was born and raised in Toronto, and I know you're out in the West Coast, and that's what makes us great uh, balancing pals. We, we, we've, got the, we've got the country uh, in the palm of our hand. But Freedom 55 was, hey, imagine a future financially where you can retire at 55. And the joke always was that the only person running on the beach alongside you was your financial planner, not yourself. And so why I'm saying that is romanticizing return has always been this thing of if I were to invest my funds, my life, my family, their patience, uh, my faith into a thing, a person or an outcome, and there is no return on it, who's ultimately bankrupted? So I think what we've now seen is, is, is the reality of return, returning. I think there's, there's this real, true staunch look at what are the true facts 
uh, objectively rather than what are the true facts subjectively. So a return is not just this airy fairy fluffy term. What I love that you're championing is that no, that it has to be a definitive, measurable, uh, performance-based metric that came out of exercising or practicing an investment of some kind in life. And so then I guess the mindset of either or needs to be the same. Right. Does it? Well, well, to continue the conversation it? is you got to look at the other half of your equation. I mean, a return on life sounds delightful. A return on life sounds like sunsets and time with my family and loved ones and having the freedom to choose and do what mm -hmm. I want when I want to. Not having to wear a watch because I don't really care what time of day it is. I own my day. Uh, as some kids today call it escaping the matrix, owning your time, your place, your purpose in your profession on your terms. But the life piece comes into question then. What is then life? How do you define your everyday existence? And so what's interesting, if you're going to examine what return on life is, then the next great question is, well, how do you then determine a life well lived, a mm -hmm. life worth wanting, a life worth living? And, and that slows us down enough to say, well, well, how do I live life on my terms? How do I live my life by design and not default? How do I live life the way in which works for me and my loved ones? Best of all, given the times we are in right now. And so when you when you counteract that equation as in, okay, well, I got a return on life, but this is life now, those two create what I would say is true existential symphony. It mm -hmm. creates a harmony where it's like, oh, this is light. This is airy. I can, I can do this every day. Like, Randy, can you do what you're doing right now as you're doing it every day? I could. Right. So you're a great testament to uh, and being a poster child for a great return on life. It's a return as in you're yeah. earning something on top of the investment you're making. And the life you're living is the life you want. That's how I hear it. So life then, life now, life in the future. Like, have you seen a shift? Have you seen a shift in the last three, five years of what life was then what it is now and what it wants to be for individuals i mean you're you're coaching world-class athletes world-class uh entrepreneurs business people like what has changed in their mindset or has anything changed in their mindset of what is then what is now and what is the future yeah i mean I, i'm an advisor to a member of the royal family i'm an advisor to a former u.s president i'm an advisor to hollywood studio owners i'm an advisor to musicians i mean legendary musicians and actors and producers um what i find is that one thing they are all saying is oh my god we're getting older <laughs> i mean time is not kind and it's 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 just the one absolute inescapable imminent truth in life is that as time ticks for one, it ticks for all. And so I feel like that's what a lot of these folks have got in common is that they do feel that as they get older, time is a more finite experience than an infinite experience. Asking my 17 year old, if he can do something, he's got all the time in the world to get to it in his view. But for me, I got to schedule it because my time's important. You ask someone who's on in their years they might have a very different relationship. Some people may not even be buying green bananas anymore, given their relationship to the future. But I mean, I've got a client uh, who's a billionaire client. I mean, this man is a uh, titan of business. His name is Frank Stronick. 
I mean, he's most famous for being the world's largest auto parts manufacturer. He's built over uh, 150 factories in over 80 countries, employing nearly 200,000 people. His company does $26 billion a year in revenues, Magna International. And he's 91 years of age hmm. and is mapping out businesses, building factories, launching campaigns, launching scholarships, initiatives, his seven-point plan to save Canada in its financial and political future. This guy's not slowing down. He makes me feel lazy and tired. So time is relative given the future in which you've got. So here's what I have to say. I want you all to write this down, especially if you're listening and learning, and it's particularly you, Randy. I think the old way of us ontologically or philosophically or existentially relating to the past, to the present, and the future is a bit, mis a bit misleading. Longer and heavier so into the future rather than leaning into the past and having to reconcile that which we cannot change or alter anyway. Hmm. That was deep. That was really deep. It I love it. It is deep. And, it, and, it's, and it's deep because it's the kind of work we've all been doing. And thanks to social media and the way in which these platforms work, we all are enduring the type of learning curves that have afforded us the ability to find our voice and inspire others. You are, I have, and many others are. Maybe, maybe those who are even listening to you now are saying, gosh, I just realized something. I am more than just a realtor. I am more than just a broker. I am more than just a builder or a lender or an investor. I am more than all these things. And it's true, you are. But it's like, well, then how do I prove it? How do I measure it? How do I grow that? And that's why I think as an existential context, the return on life is a very good, valid one to come from and, and, and invent from. Right. And yet, I'm sure these incredible people that you, you know work with, consult with, coach, they probably run through some of these same questions in their minds. Am I worthy? Am I fulfilling everything I'm supposed to fulfill? Um, how do I get out of my past to get into my future? Like, I'm sure we all struggle with that. You see this firsthand with these high performance people. How do you coach them through that? And how do you have them maybe bring their greatest gift to the surface that they still don't even know they have? Well, that's that's a tough question. I mean, the, the reality for a lot of people is that they don't really still realize that they really are stuck in a former version of themselves. You know, oftentimes we think that we live life quite objectively. We mm -hmm. think that that's really what we do. And that's exactly how we go about our life, creating it, causing it and living into what's next. But the truth of the matter is, is we actually live quite subjectively. We actually have our views and opinions. So it's not about the facts. It's really about the fantasy. It's about the interpretation and the lens in which we look through that has us experience life and the experiences within it the way we do. So for a lot of people, I mean, for what I do, running a company like Legacy Council of the Americas, reinventing people's relationship to their financial futures, done in such a way that matters, moves the needle and shifts their relationship to money, wealth and worth, more on that later. But when as I work with these icons, Randy, these these legends, these gods, if I dare say, of, of, of commerce and culture, uh, they're really stuck because... They've rode the wave of their own relevance, whether a sports person or an actor or, or again, a member of the royal family. And when there's no longer a use for them or that role is no longer necessary, they then fall off 
this 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 incredible plateau, this mountaintop, mm-hmm. because they've not yet created what could be next for them. So mm-hmm. whatever we create, we become. Whatever we create, we become. So whether they're and some people call these goals or aspirations, I think that that's too small for what it is you've got to cause and create. Causing and creating a life you want to live is about really imagining that world for yourself. So you know what that life needs to be. So in alignment with your return on life, return to living is measuring how close, how close, this is my life, how close am I now coming into that view? And when it becomes fully eclipsed, then I know I'm living completely in alignment and anew, then I know I got a complete return on life because I've completely returned to a life, a life I want and a life worth living. Hmm. Makes sense? It does make sense. Um, can I ask you this question? You can ask have me another ever, question. Have you ever felt like you're an underdog? Oh, every day. So my question then is, have you ever met somebody that doesn't think they're an underdog, especially the big performers that you've met? Like, I mean, you were part of the 2012-2013 Miami Heat Championship uh um runs uh, you're uh, on the the team itself right you're a performance coach how many of those athletes felt like they're underdogs at one point or maybe still feel in their life and how does that fuel them i i mean look to, to, to properly contextualize those rings i now have three nba three. rings yeah, i know amazing right wow. when i worked at the miami heat during the 2012 2013 season back to back um, under the tutelage of Juwan Howard, who went from player to coach. Um, I stayed with them as a coach and LeBron James left and went to Cleveland, won his third ring. I was not with them. But then when he went to the Lakers and they won the bubble ring, the 2020 bubble ring, which is the year the pandemic first raged through the entire world, let alone the league, I was gifted from that team a ring for my role in supporting the cast of characters uh, in during that time. Wow. So... What's interesting and over that entire years of experience in interacting with players, um, they would all have the need to feel like they've got the approval of the coach. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to the coach. The However the coach relates to you is going to define what role you play on the court. Either starting lineup, the you know second second wind, and or you might be a bench player. Where you're deep in the bench and should, should someone get hurt and no one's the back that backup up, you're on deck now. So I think for a lot of a lot of players, they're always coming at it like they're an underdog in the eye of the judge, in this case, the coach. That's my experience. And I think in life, we all do have that. Um, we all have what I would call a subconscious, often unconscious view of how the world sees us. And those we feel are watching, and I've come to call those the three keepers, they're, they're a construct in our minds that you cannot touch, you cannot see. It's not like they're not as, as clear as day as like this bottle is in front of you and I, but it's the part of your unconscious makeup that preserves and protects you. And you experience it as being small, stuck, or stopped. So as soon as you say, I'm going to go and become a realtor, and you want to go out there, you can start to hear a voice in your mind that might be your mom or dad that says, are you really cut out to be a realtor? Like, oh, yeah, that you don't want their judgment. The first judge, uh, the first, uh, rather, the first keeper is their judge, the judgment. 
Or you might be having that internal dialogue in your mind saying, well, you know what? I think I'm bigger than that. I think I can be someone bigger than a realtor, like a developer, a city planner. Heck, I can own my own town. I mean, that's ego. The keeper of ego. Is this going to fit the view and the vision you've got for yourself? And the third, which is the most common keeper, is fear. What if we screw it up? What if we get it wrong? What, what if we fail? What if we flop? You know, it, it's better just to stay stuck, stay small. Great thought. Good for you, uh, Randy. But need not be a realtor. Let's just be here. Let's stay small, insignificant, just surviving. Because that's what the keepers do. They're only wired to do one thing, and that's to keep you safe surviving. After all, you know that this machine up here has perfected the act of, of survival over 3 million years. It didn't perfect the act of being happy, uh, content, motivated, inspiring, lifted up, lit up, or seeking a return on life. It's only wired to survive, to live another day. And that's it. So the minute you step out of that zone and anything seems uncertain or could be intimidating or just would question your existence and sanity or survival, the keepers kick in. A abstract, mental, conscious or unconscious conversation in your mind that keeps you back, that holds you down. It prevents you from being out there. So truly, in a long-winded way, the ultimate person responsible for you being an underdog is you. You're wired to be an underdog because your underdogs aren't meant to perform. And, and, and mentally, you have got to fight the gravity within your mind that's always wanting to hold you back, drag you down, keep you as you were, keep you as you is. That's why we love suffering and talking about the past and all the stuff that's happened and all the heartbreak you went through and what dad did, and what mom said and what, what he did and how your heart broke and all that stuff because it's what has you thrive in a former edition that kept you smallest. So I think the underdog as a mental construct is really one that we're always battling with because that's your subconscious battling you. Hmm. And I guess that's why we love cheering for the underdog. Because we see ourselves we in relate to it so well. We that's right. And my God, Randy, you see this in politics. Need not tell you which ones or what side of the border or if it's blue or red. This is why we love someone going from, oh, my God, they were just a drama teacher. How amazing they became a leader until they are. And you were like, oh, my God, that was the dumbest idea we could have ever thought of. We are pulled towards an underdog because we relate to them most of all it is the lowest domination denomination rather of human relatability of saying wow i can really just get that you know i can really feel for them i empathize i sympathize with them and so you cheer them on you give them some of that energy you pray for them you hope for them you you're cheering for them and then when they make it reality kicks in logic is calculated to go gosh that was a silly thing to do we should have cheered that person on. They should not be in politics or at the helm or the CEO of this company or or my boss, right? Uh, for that matter. Yeah. So how do we um, how do we find our way out of that cycle of being the underdog? Um, this is quite an interesting topic to me. I'm uh, working on a book about underdogs and uh, and how to fight your way through that and and create a life worth living. And so what is what is a bulletproof way of um, I guess, helping ourselves, and you see this in, in top performers, how do they create an environment where they don't feel like an underdog, or should they feel like an underdog to use that as 
you know, the the change agent to create something else. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, my my I, I haven't told this story very often, so I, I apologize for sharing it maybe as a proud dad, your friend, or just to get to the point. But I, I have a son. He's now 17. And, and you referenced the Miami Heat. And during that time and doing the work that I did, I was actually intending to create, which I later launched, a private pension plan for professional players that invested money from players into real estate with my dear friend, Hunter Milborn. And so we, we we accomplished that, but a real happy second circumstance was I became friends with Juwan Howard and became a counselor to him and many others. So during that time, I would go down to Miami very often. It's only two and a half hours gate to gate from Toronto to Miami. And I would bring my son many times. And what would hop, what happen often is I would be on the court and I would be on one side of the court, the practice facility where all the guys would be hanging out, the players and doing their thing with Pat Riley and and of course, uh, Coach Spolstra. And, but on the other side would be the kids. And so you'd have Chris Bosch's kids there and LeBron James's kids would be there and Dwayne Wade and, and, and all the others. I mean, Battier has kids and all the kids would hang out down there. And my son would play basketball with these kids and he really would come home believing, Randy, he was a basketball player. He believed he was a basketball player. And why wouldn't you? Because you're in the Miami Heat building, you're playing with all these players, and I mean, legends on the other side. And it's very easy at, you know, six, seven, eight years old, think that you're going to be a basketball player. But Randy, there's not a single basketball bone in my body, not a single basketball bone in my body, nor his, by, by just osmosis. But he believed he was a player. So guess what as a loving dad would do? Let's get you some basketball shoes and get you into a league, a house league. And, and Randy, for his whole first season, he, he never made a pass nor made a score. He never made a single point. And every time he came off the court, you know what he'd say to me? Dad, I'm getting better, aren't I? Every <laughs> single day, I'm getting better. He believed he was actually really good. Mm. So what would a dad with the ego I've got do next? I hired a coach. I'm like, yo, dude, you got to help me out, man. I mean, it's embarrassing. I mean, bringing this kid, I'm a coach to the Miami Heat. I can't be having my, my kids playing basketball with Miami Heat gear on. I'm doing a discredit to this billion dollar franchise. Could you teach him how to play? Yeah. So sure enough, he taught him how to play and he got better and he got skillful. But every single season, he kept thinking he was on his way. Randy, he would miss 15 shots and make one. He goes, dad, we've got 14 to go. <laughs> he, he, he really dolanized me. It's almost like he read Tony Robbins's work. He was actually reading the material I was writing. And he actually was really believing it to the point where you fast forward, this kid ends up making the Nike Signature Elite League. He makes it in the top 1% of the basketball world at his age category. And why I share that story as both a proud dad, but also as a coach and your friend is because the way we're able to escape the way of thinking that frames us in our experience of life as an underdog, it all begins in the mind. So as soon as your mind sets itself on whatever vision, whatever experience, that which you want to have, you'll have it. My old mentor once said to me, his name is Richard also, and he says, whatever you fear, you will expect, and whatever you expect, you will experience. And it's very fitting to this underdog conversation. So if you start with positive potential, you then go into positive action to realize that potential. And if you can hold that vision true for yourself that I'm going to be a basketball player, I am a basketball player, I'm going to be a pro, I am a pro, then everything you do and the feedback you get is your 
a basketball pro. You're a positive outcome from positive action rooting from your positive vision, your positive potential. And that gives you the positive feedback, which only reinforces in your mind that, hey, this ain't actually so bad. We're making it. So we call that your self-talk. You might even call that the voice within. But that's the way to, in fact, quiet down your view of the world and your experience of it as an underdog. Now, the opposite is true. If you don't think you can and you, if you don't think you will, well, guess what? Physiologically, that sets you up not to. That produces the results in the world that aren't. And it gives you the feedback that says, you see, you're right. You will never be. And so that is a closed loop that leaves you saying, well, you see, I'm an underdog. It'll always happen to me. See, there's proof in the pudding. I'll never make it out there. And so all of a sudden you realize that the underdog truly lives within the mind. Right. It's all up here. And it's all within you to either experience it as true or experience it as folklore. So I guess I could have played in the NBA. 100% you could have. And you likely wouldn't have made it, but that's just me being funny with you. <laughs> but gosh, do you think Steve Nash heard that? How could a short guy of his physical and physiological makeup ever make the NBA guys? Like, come on. Yeah. Would Spud Webb standing at five foot eight yes. ever be an NBA player, let alone a basketball dunking champion? Like, go figure. So defying the odds, right. defying the gravity, defying the bad thing into happy think allows you to at least set yourself up to escape the experience or opinion that you're an underdog. So well said. And it really brings us back to gifting and gifts. Uh, we can create and make gifts within us because of this thing called our brain. Our mind can actually help us create gifts within us. Hey, what's uh, what's maybe some of the greatest gifts that uh, that you have, or what is one of your greatest gifts that you want to share with us? I don't know. I mean, it's I always am discovering new gifts of mine, and I and I know some of them. I like to relate to them as your superpowers, right? We all have superpowers, and those superpowers yeah. make us unique and sometimes feeling somewhat invincible, whether intellectually or physically, mentally, spiritually, um, emotionally. And and then you always will have a kryptonite. There's something. There's a part of you that is a weakness of some sort. But but I think for my gifts of I'm hyper creative. Um, I think that's a natural gift. It's something I've perfected. It's something that I've leaned in on. I'm hyper creative. I can write, I can draw, I can craft, I can create. Uh, that's just who I am. When, I when did that gift come about? When did you get that? I mean, I see that in you so, so clearly. And it's just a, an incredible gift that you have. Did that come early on? Or was that just something that matured over time? Well, this is very nicely aligned. And thank you for that compliment. I, I definitely take it. Um, but for the, when we talked about just now about the positive feedback, mm -hmm. when I was a kid and I was drawing, I would have aunts and uncles say, wow, Richard's really talented. He should draw more often. So I would hear the feedback. Now mm -hmm. I look back and I think, ah, that makes complete sense. I mean, if I couldn't draw and they gave me that positive feedback, I would eventually be someone who would think I was a great artist, but never was and wouldn't have had a chance. So I would have definitely hit a wall at some particular point. But I was so good that I would have aunts and uncles say, listen, he could be an illustrator. He should go to Disney. He can draw cartoons. Like he, I was that good. The problem was, is that I didn't have a real connection to drawing. I found myself drawing. And when I used to recount my memories from actually drawing when I was a kid and noticing I don't draw anymore, 
is because I did that for the attention. I did it to get acknowledged. I did it to get loved and to get the care and the kind of uh, connection that I craved as a young boy growing up out of a broken home. So after I got the attention of aunts and uncles who said, wow, you're so creative. Look, you draw something. Would you draw me something, please? And I'll give you $5 or a cookie or whatever. I'm like, heck yeah, I'll draw you anything for a cookie and some love. Um, I'm not that cheap anymore, by the way. I, I want more <laughs> than just a cookie. So, so what I do notice though, is I, I'm, I'm that creative today, but in a different way. I, I use that creativity as a real wonderful way to create IP, to uh, craft curricula, to develop coaching programs, to run a business uh, on both sides of the border, uh, both in New York and in Toronto. And, and to do the kind of work I do gener is generated because of the creativity I keep tapping into. That's what's, that's what's really cool for me. What's yeah. your gift? What's your gift, Randy? I'm an underdog. That's your gift? <laughs> well, you know, gifts are interesting. You know, our spouses, our significant others, our uh, people that are closest to us often know our gifts better than we know ourselves. But I'm a connector. I would say one of my gifts is is connecting. I do have a pretty creative mind as well and can see things coming at me that I go, man, if it was just tweaked this way, that way. And then also knowing who the who is that I need to bring into whatever I'm doing is also, I think, a gift of mine. I, I have I have a different interpretation of what you think your gifts are. And I'll tell you why. And I say this not because, and I don't want to cheat here by making it seem like this is quick and off the cuff. I've been around you a long time. Um, I've had the pleasure of interacting with you at events and uh, at conferences, um, across coaching platforms. I mean, you're involved in one of my businesses uh, which you believed in early on. And for that, I'll forever be uh, grateful to you um, for exercising a faith with funds and in our friendship. But but what I will say, though, given your history, given your accident, given the nature of who you are, the relationship I know you share with your bride, the businesses that you've built, the people that you've built who've stayed with you, and most of all, many have left because that's the nature of that business. Uh, and I'm referring to your real estate realtor business, mm -hmm. as well as your real estate deals and your development deals and your rallying of funds and hearing yeses and noes. I think one of your greatest gifts is your resilient. Mm -hmm. You embody the very principles of resilience. And if you look at the term resilience, if you look it up under the definitions, you'll see that many of terms that are used, it's it's the ability to bounce back as a former self regardless of incident or accident like so you have an ability to always constantly come back you're always smiling it, it's it's so upsetting i don't smile that much you smile constantly i mean you're a beacon for resilience you're a beacon for bouncing back and regardless of what happens what occurs or what unfolds you you take the shots however they may and you just keep forging ahead uh it's probably why you do that uh that daredeviling habit of yours hobby of yours uh skype 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 kite skating kite whatever surfing. Kite, surfing. kite surfing goodness you know i'm a city slicker and i can't even figure out what it is that you do but but i know it's dangerous i mean i mean you probably fall down more than you're actually in fact surfing true at times yes right well, it depends how much you're pushing it if you're pushing it you're gonna crash you gotta push to crash to get better well come on I mean, that doesn't sound like a connector to me. It sounds like a guy with a cape who's resilient and wants to test the limits of your resiliency. So I want to say on your show during this time together that uh, it's my observation and therefore my assertion that you're resilient. 
and and you shared that gift and likely with people who are seeking to be resilient too in life in leadership uh in their business that's why you're so passionate about reinventing people's relationship to their professional futures um even with money and investing you're you're just that guy and uh i want you to try that on see if that works hmm. i hey i really appreciate that and i i believe you're true and you're accurate on that uh and I watched this actually in my twin brother. So the the closest image of myself is my twin. I have an identical twin, as you know, and uh, and I see how resilient he is. So um, you know, it's probably a, a similar DNA in me. <laughs> um, probably is. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that. Um, who are you uninterrupted? Who are you in the quiet, Richard? Who am I in the quiet? Yeah. Oh, I think I'm actually very restless in the quiet. I mean, I don't know if it's because I was taught, you know, the devil will find work for idling hands. I don't know if I'm, uh, I just don't know how to sit still quite yet. Um, I do appreciate downtime. I appreciate recovery. I know that laws of longevity are such that I need to recoup and recover and recharge. I understand being able to turn my brain off, be away from my screen, be away from bright lights, um, stay off stages, you know, stay out of a plane um, for a period of time. So I, I do appreciate quiet time. I definitely love reading, uh, escaping with a great movie. I'm a huge film nut. I enjoy film uh, very, very much, which is likely why I'm involved in that space in a small way, um, staying close to it. Um, but but most of all, who I am in the quiet is, is just a very diligent father still yet. I mean, I've got one son. I keep a close eye on him and I watch him carefully and, and I love our friendship. I love our bond. And, um, and that's probably the one thing I'll watch very carefully for only a little while yet because now that he's got a license, in a vehicle, I, I I rarely see him. He's always looking for for gas money and his keys. So uh, I know I can't hide them from him forever. So uh, but that's probably who I am in the quiet. Um, learning, and I'm sure you're the same, Randy. I'm learning to uh, listen more. I'm definitely learning uh, to learn again. Uh, I've got a very dear friend and collaborator, Jim Quick, who, who really has been a, a big instrument for uh, in, impact in helping people unlearn the way they've learned and relearn how to learn anew. Uh, especially in this day and age of, of, of mental wellness and health. So I'm really appreciating learning new things. I'm appreciating uh, listening to folks around me and my team. Um, I've got a very great team that that supports me. It takes about a, a cast of 14 people to support what I do across the various things that we're doing. So uh, I'm learning to lean in, slow down, um, and not be so bold and always in action. I mean, that's that's important for me as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, being a student of the game uh, should never, never end. Um, and speaking of student of the game, technology today, it's uh, it's moving at a speed that we've never, ever seen before. Neck-breaking. It's, it's, yeah, it's neck-breaking. How does technology fit into your world today? And how do you see it uh, creating, impacting, changing um, who we are as individuals in the world of business, entrepreneurship, life. Um, any any thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I, I think I think we've always have gone through these stages of adopting, you know, new and innovative technologies in a in a different and unique way. Um, I mean, gosh, it wasn't so long ago that uh, we moved from you know television sets and silver screens to cable television, first choice and super channels, where movies were coming in on demand. Um, and you fast forward to the kinds of phones and devices that you use. And of course, internet was born and the way we see connected in our, 
And it's hard to imagine our life before all this technology. It really, really is. I mean, but if but if I were to pull up my phone and I were to ask, hey, Siri, play me music I will really like. Play me music I will really like. I mean, this is live, right? And what she'll say, so she's playing music, right? Yeah. Now, I didn't know I wanted that song. I didn't know I felt like that music. But based mm -hmm. on my listening patterns and algorithm in which she's studying, she's taking the thinking out of my having to. So what technology has done is it's trying to make life easier, taking the thinking out of thinking about what to do. So when people would start to say, hey, the other day I was, uh, I was talking about uh, kite surfing. And all of a sudden, the most bizarre thing happened. I think on my phone, I started getting advertisements on kite surfing. Can you believe it? Yeah. And I thought to myself, yes, I can, because these devices are designed to be listening to you. So to help you. So when it does help you, don't be surprised. That's what they're built to do. Um, if you don't like what it's finding you, change your conversation. It's not this artificial intelligence that's shaping the way we live. It's the what we're teaching it. I, I think artificial intelligence has got a bad rap. It should be really be called digital intelligence because digitally is how it exists. Artificially is how it's delivered. Right. So this is largely why one of the biggest uh, businesses that I'm responsible for has made a massive investment into artificially generated, digitally powered, but human oriented advisory work. So we've teamed up with a company that does that in real estate. We're teaming up with a company in New York that does that in investment planning. We're doing that with a business that does it in the world of lending. So this incredible uh, basket of financial solutions are really powered by the very thing that I think will be running the future of all things uh, financial. Yeah. I was going to ask you who is the best in the world that does what you do, but you just pulled out your, your best right here in your phone. And right, really, we have Einstein in our pocket these days. It's uh, it's quite incredible, quite incredible. Well, and I don't know if I would uh, characterize it as Einstein. I think that's your relationship thinking that's smarter, but but it actually is even smarter than Einstein because what what this device represents is trillions of data points, trillions of mm -hmm. data points in which it can scrub, find, and give you the answer. So actually, it's going to be only as smart as an Einstein to you because you have to be as smart as an Einstein to make it work. So if you're not asking it the right kind of questions, you're not going to get the right kind of answers that you really are seeking. So the quality of the answer is only de defined by the quality of the question. And I think what we need to figure out is what is the quality of our questions that we're asking technology to do. And that brings us to like, well, what problems do we really need to solve? So I think that's what's changing. What's changing is the way we view creating things for the future is now evolving. Uh, like my son, as he's getting prepared for university, is very is a very different conversation than when I had the conversation about a university, or when you did, or when our fathers did, or our grandfathers did. Every era had a very different industrial age, and I think the age of the future of all things economy and industri industry is a very very different world. No right. thanks to uh, scale of economy, technology, globalization, uh, politicalization. And, and, and not to mention the radicalization of the world and the, and, and the challenges and the upset that is, I mean, abound. It's, it's yeah. completely abound. So it's, it's going to be an interesting next 25 to 50 years. Um, yeah. I hope I'm blessed uh, enough to see them both. Well, and that being said, you know, um, some things never really change. And really, you know, we talk about AI and it's really about the prompt. It's really about the question. 
And life has always been about who can ask the best questions, gets the best answers and gets the best whatever after that. So it's really about being curious and using your imagination and being uh, really good with asking the right question. So on that, let's uh, just move to speed round and uh, we'll finish it off here with a few questions. Uh, you ready? Let's go. So fine dining, Uber Eats, takeout or home cooked meal? Home cooked meal. Okay. And I got a great home cooked meal all the time. So I, I like a home cooked meal. Are you are you a chef of of some sort? I I could see you being pretty good in the kitchen. I wouldn't say I'm a chef. I mean, I wouldn't take that because I don't want that kind of pressure. I don't I don't need you to ask me the next question, which is like, hey, when can you cook me a dinner? Because I you're always welcome to my place for a dinner. Um, but I'm no I'm no stranger in 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 the kitchen. I think that's a real wonderful place to perform some artistry, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's great. So a home cooked meal, hundred percent. Awesome. What do you do to let your hair down? You got nothing to do. You got your the day's all yours. What do you do? The best way to let my hair down is let go of the gel. I, that's the first place I can start. Is that that's that it starts there. Um, but again, I just I I love to be able to just hang out at home and and, and do some reading. I'm definitely a feverish reader. Mm. You've met so many incredible people. Uh, favorite artist could be music, could be uh, the big screen. Favorite artist. Man, that's a tough one. I've met so many incredible artists. I mean, it, it really depends on what genre, mm -hmm. uh, who they are and what they come from. I mean, to me, one of my favorite politicians having worked with and met was definitely President Clinton for, for having really created the first accountable charitable initiative called the Clinton Global Initiative. Um, he's charming and besides opinion and public views, I mean, he's he's just a real charming person I've had the pleasure of knowing for a long, long time and continue to collaborate with. Um, I think one of the most incredibly most kind people that really champions kindness has been the Duchess of York, um, Her Royal Highness Sarah Ferguson. She's been a, a very dear friend, um, going through a very tough time given what the Duke's been going through. And of course, the changing of the guard, so to speak, with the passing of the Queen. And of course, the Queen left her her dogs. Uh, King Charles now takes the throne. And I mean, the dynamics have shifted. So she's been empowered to do a lot of great work. Um, but she's a really great insp inspiration for someone who's been resilient. Um, always impressed with what Mike Tyson continues to do with his brand since having worked with him uh, all those years ago. Um, and and know, I would, yeah, please. Can I interrupt you a little bit? You know, um, we put all these people on pedestals, but they're just, they're just you and I, right? They're just people. They're just people. And they, they, they have the same stuff going on as you and I each and every day, some good, some bad, trying to make the best of it all. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. It's really crazy. It's true. I mean, I used to remind me because I'm, I'm smiling. I'm sure if you can see that. And for those who are just listening, I, I am smiling from your ear because I sat recently next to the Duchess. We hosted a, a small luncheon. We had a dinner in New York and then we flew up to host clients up here in Toronto. And uh, she sat beside me and I reached down to do something with my scarf as I'm wearing right now. It's just that time of year. I like a scarf on my head and I reached down because it had fallen. As I picked it up, my I had a bracelet on that caught. It, it it just it just rubbed her leg. And as I pulled it back up, it tore, it tore her pantyhose. And I, I was embarrassed. I was, I swear, I was so, I was so upset with myself. Um, it, it was a very close quarters. We were at a very, very small table. And I said, Oh my goodness, Duchess, I'm so sorry. And she looked at me, she goes, my dear, even the Duchess's pantyhose rips from time to time. <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, you talk about 
humans. I mean, people are just people. So you're right. We, we do put them on pedestals and I think it's because of the platforms we give them. But at the end of the day, they are just real. They're just real people. And, and most of the people I've met are really kind and very cool. And there's only a handful, a handful that I wouldn't give the time of day to uh, having learned that uh, firsthand. Mm. There's only one on my hit list. There's only one that if I did go toe to toe with, I would gladly, I, I'd gladly bury him in a snowbank. <laughs> um, audible or book? Oh, book, book. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I don't know about you, but I always have these guys next to me. I mean, they're in every part of my house, including a bathroom. Don't ask me why, uh, but highlighter, pen and marker. I'm always, always crap. I'm always drawing in my books. I'm always underlining things. I'm always highlighting stuff. I've only later now learned my son's going through all my books in my library. And he's like, dad, you made life so easy. I go, why? He goes, because I'm just reading all the things that you've highlighted in a book. You're saving me so much time. I said, no, no, don't do that. Buy your own copies. Um, but I definitely go, I definitely go a book. I, I don't think I've ever read, uh, read a digital book ever. Hmm. I'm books too. Um, I'm not sure where I, where I caught up on this, but what I do is I go to the front cover and I write the page number that brings the most interest. And I just go to the front cover and I go page, you know, five, 10, 20, 50, whatever. Yeah. So I, I do that when I'm reading. You know, the books that are usually around me are the books I'm currently reading, but I want to see if I can find one. But I would, I definitely would write in the book, like my name and my, and the year in which I'm reading that book. Mm. And then what I would typically do, let's see if I can pull one here. And I would typically, oh, wow. It's very funny. I just pulled this book. Oh, yeah. So here's one. The, how apropos is this book? I just grabbed it. As you can tell, I've got like books everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. Books are everywhere. If you look behind me, they're right down to the ground. I mean, yeah. I got lots of books, right? The book I grabbed. Can you see that? Resilience. There it is. How apropos. <laughs> and when I read this book, it would have been July 2018. Wow. So what's cool about that is I, I can look at that book and say, wow. But, but, but again, on the back of the book, I've got notes. Beautiful. Right. And if I go through this book, they would it would typically look like, you know, circled stuff, highlighted stuff all throughout. I mean, typically, that's just what I do, um, you know, underline like anyone else. So that's why a hard copy book is so important to me. Um, that way, I'll always be able to go through there and say, hey, how big of a book was this? And as I read it, I'm like, wow. Uh, I mean, even that interests me right now. I'll see what I wrote to myself. Yeah. And, um, and now there's technology where if you scan the book and it takes your notes, you can actually have a, a note summary on, on books you've read. Awesome. Hey, last question. Trick question. If you were a scratch and sniff sticker, a scratch and sniff sticker, and I rubbed you on the shoulder, the back or wherever, what would I smell? Well, I want to be a sticker that was like a pair of cherries. And I'd want you to scratch my cherries. I think that would be great. I want you to smell cherry. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And, and I think the visual just took this show from like PG-13 to like, you know, rated R. Like in the last <laughs> few seconds, it just like, oh, you guys almost made it. Now it's got to be rated R. Oh, well, that's great. Hey, Richard, thank you so much. This has been such a great interview on Return on Life. And you've just dropped so many incredible nuggets. So I just want to thank you for being awesome. a, a guest and uh, for all the great stuff you shared with us today. Hey, listen, man, I got to say this in closing. What, what's amazing about anyone running a show, podcast, and or any kind of platform, you know, most of us can. But when you elect to do it because you really hope to ignite in people, 
the same level of passion you live with, that that's a real heroic act. That's that's you being a real instrument for impact out there. So so thank you. I mean, thanks for giving me the stage to share with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, but again, thank you for your friendship, Randy. You you were you were dearly uh, missed. I haven't seen you physically in a long time, so it's great to see you digitally at the very least. And if there's anything I can ever do for you, uh, the people that are around you and in your community, of course, I'm always a phone call away. Right on, Richard. Thank you so much. Thank Good you, brother. Okay.